The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Serving spiritual seekers around the world. Unity Online Radio. Thank you for tuning in for this Unity Partner Program. Unity Online Radio partners with spiritual leaders from organizations whose mission and messages complement Unity's. We are pleased to bring you this program on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. to Main Street Vegan with host Victoria Moran. Victoria is an author, inspirational speaker, and a certified holistic health counselor and vegan lifestyle coach. She's here to entertain, educate, and inspire you on your journey to look and feel amazing, eat extraordinary food, help animals, and create a physical body perfectly attuned to spiritual growth. Now, let's get this party started. Here's your host, Victoria Moran. Veganism is a way of living which seeks to exclude, as far as is possible and practicable, all forms of exploitation of and cruelty to animals for food, clothing, or any other purpose. The Vegan Society, 1979. Did you know that? Or maybe you've heard the definition and didn't know who came up with it or or when. I wasn't quite sure, but it was on the multiple choice quiz that I participated in when they had the vegan celebrities quiz panel at VegFest UK in London this weekend. I'm Victoria Moran, host of this program, and we are actually, instead of being live as we usually are, generally we're live, you can call in, you can talk to the guests, but this program is special because I am still in London, and my guest that I'll be introducing in a very few minutes is historian Ian MacDonald, author of Vegetarianism, The Story So Far, from his legendary podcast, The Vegan Option. But before I introduce Ian, I want to share with you about what's been going on over here Oh my gosh, it is so exciting. This is the third time that I've been to VegFest UK in London, and this is not the only city in the UK where they have festivals. They actually have quite a few. The one in London, however, seems to be the flagship, and it is huge. It's bigger every year. And something that was so heartening for me to see this year was that they've divided this huge Olympia, a large convention space, 
into so many different sections that to me really gave a beautiful rainbow view of what veganism is. So in addition to the main auditorium, there were all sorts of other rooms. One was called Radical Veganism. There was a health center. There was an athlete's center. There was an activist corner, a mature corner, a teen corner. There was just something for everybody, including a comedy stage and a music stage, because you know what? We touch everything as people who are trying to live according to that beautiful definition that I read earlier. So some of the other things that have been going on for me over here, you know, if you listen to this show or if you've read my books, that this is my favorite place. I moved here on my 18th birthday because it just seems so magical to me and it hasn't changed one bit until now. So this morning I got to visit my 93-year-old yoga teacher, Stella Scherfus. And if you'd like to know more about Stella, she was actually on this podcast a couple of years ago. I believe at that time she was 91. So if you look through the archives, you'll see 91-year-old Yogini. And that was my interview with Stella. She is a remarkable woman going extremely strongly. She told me that she started yoga in the early 1950s. And here she is. She said, I'm living the way that I live today because I am very disciplined and because I do yoga. So that kind of inspires me. Get up early in the morning and move. She gets up every morning and is at the swimming pool at 6 a.m. And otherwise, round and about and having a wonderful life at 93. So blessings to you, Stella. It's such a, a joy to know you and to have you in my life. One of the other things that's really fun about traveling abroad in the vegan circle and vegan movement is I get to see so many of my American friends that I don't really get to see because, you know, it's a great big country. And so we just don't get together very often. So Dr. Milton Mills is one of the speakers uh, for the conference. And so he's not been to London until now. And I've been having fun being a little bit of a tour guide with him. So that's been exciting. We're also going to be uh, having lunch with uh, Andy Ramage, who was a guest on the show before. If you want to look him up, you can look for the show that talks about no bread no beer. And I was talking with Joanne Farb about gluten and people who need to stay away from that. And also uh, Andy, whose organization is called One Year No Beer. Very, very interesting. Vegans are fascinating. Some of us are experts on beer. Some of us don't drink beer. And that's what's cool, because we want to save all the animals. We need all the people. And one of the things that I see traveling abroad is how international this is, talking with people who say, I live in Portugal, I live in Australia, met somebody who said, I live in Mexico half the year. Isn't it wonderful that we are saving animals and changing this planet from every corner of the globe? Oh, and I need to tell you, this is the last thing. I met a gentleman who is a flat earther. I've never met a person who is a flat earther before, I kind of thought maybe they were joking, but I met someone who talked to me about something that has always seemed to me um, hmm, very, very odd. And yet this gentleman was totally charming. 
This is why I need to get out of my living room, off my block, onto an airplane, and around the world talking to all sorts of fascinating folks. And from my living room usually, but not today, talking to fascinating you. So thank you so very much for being part of the program. Now we are going to get to the tempe of the matter and introduce my very special guest, Ian McDonald. Every month, vegetarians and vegans around the world are joining thousands of Londoners to tune into an epic radio series that tells the millennia-spanning backstory to today's vegetarian and vegan movements. Independent broadcaster Ian McDonald has taken a sabbatical from paid employment to record interviews with world-leading experts, pour over esoteric research in the British Library, and travel to the places where the story unfolded, including the length and breadth of India, to bring the story to listeners. The UK's leading art radio station, Renaissance FM, broadcast vegetarianism the story so far on the first Tuesday of each month. This 15-part story unfolds, started back in February of 2016, and will conclude until June, in June 6th, um, well, it's already concluded, June 6th, 2017, so Ian can tell us how we can get it now and uh, listen to it all the time. It's all available uh, on my website, theveganoption.org, or I set up the, the short form veghist.org, V-E-G, vegetarian, H-I-S-T, history, dot org, to, just to take you straight to the page with all 15 episodes of our epic backstory. Ah, well... Um, and you can search for the vegan option from all good podcast, all good podcast providers. Wonderful. And, and we'll also put all of your URLs on the Main Street Vegan podcast show notes so people can find you easily. So I'm fascinated, in as we were talking before the program, when we do our little veg trivia quizzes at Main Street Vegan Academy, the program that I run in New York City, I find that the students who come are very well educated about food, about animal rights, about nutrition, but they're very unclear on our history. Do you think this is true of most vegans? I've never tasted that question the way you, you have with your quiz at the Main Street Vegan Academy. But I do get some... Uh, I've been surprised by some of the reactions. I mean, in London, um, just on the main shopping street, uh, there's, there's a vegan cafe uh, that I ran into when I was doing my tour of all the sites of Victorian vegetarian London for one of my episodes. And I, I said to them, hey, I, I'd like to have a quick chat with you, just because right next door to you was one of the first uh, vegetarian restaurants in London um, in the 1870s. And they misheard and thought I said the 1970s. Oh. <laughs> because, like, oh, yes, the first vegetarian restaurant in London, that would be the, num- yes, the 1970s. Wow, that's so far back. Um, and I was, I mean, I was talking about the 1870s. And people just don't realise that there was a thriving Victorian vegetarian scene, or or how far back the word vegetarian goes, and, and all this, and all this history you've got. So there's a lot of people 
there are a lot of people who simply, like you say, think it goes back to Ingrid Newkirk. Some who are aware of perhaps Pythagoras or um, who ran a vegetarian mystical musical cult and 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 have heard a few things, but not not usually the full story. Well, where, if we want to go back into extreme antiquity, as far as historians recognize, where were the first vegetarians? Are we talking India? Are we talking Pythagoras? Where can we date it back to? That, I mean, it's really difficult because it kind of goes back into the mists of, into the mists of history. Uh, where we don't have a very solid record. And the first traditions of Buddhism, uh, which date from the 5th and 6th century, which describe the 5th and 6th centuries BCE, half a millennium before Christ, uh, talk about the Jains, ah. uh, who are a related Indian religious group, um, as an already existing group who are, Strict, whose whose monks and nuns were strict about vegetarianism, more strict than the Buddhists, and and seemed to be already an established tradition when Buddhists were just working themselves out. Um, and so that kind of implies um, something going back into the early the, the early first millennium BCE. On the Greek side. Um, we have early mentions of the of the Orphics, the followers of Orpheus. If you remember the story of Orpheus and Eurydice, Orpheus going down to the underworld and and and, and looking back to get back his wife and, and looking back and losing her. Now he's a really important cult character for the Greeks because he went to the underworld and discovered how to get out. But his followers amongst their various cultic practices was vegetarianism. Um, and so we do have um, ancient Greek sources taking it. As soon as you get in the 5th century, you're, you, you're having discourses about philosophy that survive to the present, and some of them do mention uh, the Orphics as being... Vegetarian. There is the the idiom of abstain from from encycos and soul beings, and that idiom isn't going to exist without people who practice it. So, what about Hinduism and yoga? Because I had always thought, just as a layperson, vegetarian and later vegan, that vegetarianism had always been part of that tradition. But my understanding now is that in the Vedic tradition, the most ancient part of, of Hinduism. That the, the vegetarian was not part of it, but that it came later. It's well. I think the first thing, to, the first thing to to, uh, to realize is that Hinduism, the word Hinduism, began as a Western way, possibly a Muslim way, of labeling all the disparate polytheistic faiths and philosophies of India that didn't fit into any of the other boxes. 
so that we could uh, so that people could talk about them. Um, when actually, it's not until the 19th century that the, the, the that those many religions start to say, well, if we're going to stand up against Christianity, that we need to all call ourselves Hindu. So there is this incredible diversity of ideas, mm. some of which um, come from the ancient Vedas, which many trace back to uh, to Central Asian or Black Sea pastoralists. And some of them uh, come back from many other strands of the con- come from many other strands of the continent, and there is a particular bit of the Ganges Delta in maybe the fifth century BCE where very pro-vegetarian ideas arrive. It's uh, the modern state is called Bihar, which is derived from Vihar, which means monastery. It's where you can go to the um, the the birthplace of Jainism, the places where the last great prophet of Jainism, Mahavir, prophet is simplification, but let's go with it, preached, um, and uh, uh, technically, technically the birthplace of Buddhism, uh, Bogdaya is just outside Bihar, but it's it's just, uh, but that, but it's an area you can walk across in a few days. And that fed in the ascetic tradition of that that gave us a very strong vegetarian philosophical tradition. The big uh, that, that kind of fed that became one of the many strands that we now today call Hinduism. So you can look, uh, so you can look at the many strands, and broadly speaking, um, the strands that are vegetarian are are the Buddhist Jain renunciation strands, um, the worshippers of the god Vishnu tended to, to be more likely to be vegetarian, and as the caste system developed, um, by the t- in, in some areas of India, uh, by the time you get into the first millennium, common era, it tends to be more important that people who live a holy life are expected to be vegetarian. So that's um, the Brahmin caste, or or the Brahmin group of castes. Mm -hmm. So so you end up with a continent where there are a lot of groups that are traditionally vegetarian and a lot of groups that aren't. Mm Mm-hmm. And that was something that I found even in modern times when I visited India. I was expecting to go to this completely vegetarian country, and I was surprised that that it wasn't that. But one thing I I loved about India was the restaurants that were not vegetarian would say – serve meat and all the others were just we're just normal we're vegetarian like you're supposed to be and if a restaurant served meat they made a big deal about it the way we do in the west if a restaurant is vegetarian or vegan yes i so missed that when i came back to england huh. i would, would go back uh, it was part of me would look at a street of restaurants and expect half of them to be vegetarian and half of them to be not vegetarian and the non-vegetarian wants to be labeled with a big warning to say no we're not and it's like <laughs> I where where can I go for a quick cheap dal? <laughs> uh, well, let me ask you, you. You brought up Buddhism first, so I just want to follow the Buddhist line of thinking a bit, and then we'll move on. 
But as Buddhism uh, left India and, and moved south into Sri Lanka and Thailand and then moved north and into uh, China, uh, Japan, Tibet, it seems that vegetarianism went more with one strand than with another. How did that come about? Well, after a few centuries, um, if you go, if you throw yourself into the detail, you can discover lots of different strands in early Buddhism and anxious attempts to pull together the details. Uh, but by by the start of the Common Era, by the start of AD, uh, we end up with a with with two camps. Um, the the Mahayana, the greater vehicle, uh, that tends, as you said, to be more popular in China. And um, they are more strict about vegetarianism. In some ways, they also take a, a slightly more transactional approach. It is a greater vehicle because it can carry more people. It gives people who aren't monks a way to earn merit and hence uh, improve uh, where they get reincarnated. And it develops... Uh, other ideas like Pure Land, which don't seem to have much, in my lay opinion, to do with the original ideas of Buddhism. But importantly, it becomes uh, it it becomes very strictly vegetarian, or at least it, it expects the monks to be vegetarian. Uh, it ties into Chinese ideas of purity for the people looking after a temple. Um, it's it sees vegetarianism amongst lay people as virtuous uh, and often expects people to be vegetarian perhaps on their birthday or on particular festival days. And and it's not as if it's only practiced in China. Uh, Richard Gombrich, who is a massive Indologist uh, at Oxford University, uh, made, made really clear to me that uh, that for a while uh, there are happily Mahayana-type Buddhists in Sri Lanka, and and this was uh, I, I should I should mention that this was a religion that was uh, that didn't just leave it that it spread out beyond India. It didn't just leave India, but it was kind of outcompeted in its homeland and it faded into other religions. There's a um, an amazing moment when I was talking to. Uh, the Brahmin of a Vishnu worshipping temple in eastern India. And he showed me the incarnations of Vishnu, because this is kind of how uh, a wonderful way of of integrating um, various religious groups together is you 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 discover that your that gods are incarnations of each other through time. And and who did I see as the penultimate incarnation of Vishnu, but of this very classical picture of the Buddha? Wow. So these ideas flow into each other and become incorporated in each other, and it's very much a conversation. But yes, Buddhism did kind of uh, dry up in India, and you ended up with, as you said, um, the... Um, the Mahayana version, which is more strictly vegetarian uh, in China, in East Asia, and the the Theravada version, uh, literally the word of the elders, uh, which 
uh, claims to be older. Uh, we've, uh, and it's at least cohered earlier, um, and takes the view that monks should accept what they're given, and that might or might not be meat. But still, when uh, when a a Catholic expedition landed in Sri Lanka in the Middle Ages, in the late Middle Ages, being told to find the legendary Prester John, they they noticed that they reported back that the monks were vegetarian um, and actually completely mistook them for uh, spectacularly devoted Christian monks because that's what they were being told to find, a Christian kingdom, uh, and 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 put this uh, and put this Christian explanation on everything the monks did, and it took a while before that concept of the monks became completely untenable. Um, but um, so it is. So yes, uh, it, it, so yes, um, Theravada not vegetarian, Mahayana vegetarian, and through China and East Asia is the simplified version. But it's all wonderful and complicated. Yes, yes. And I know there are wonderful groups now like uh, Dharma Voices for Animals trying to speak to mm. all Buddhists everywhere and, and to the vegetarian tradition in some of those scriptures and, and what has come down from teachings of Buddha as far as we can tell. So let's let's move over to the West. So um, Pythagoras, Essenes, where's the Western tradition? There are... And there are lots of Western traditions. They, you even uh, you have philosophers in the West who who look to the Golden Age, the same Golden Age that roughly the same mythology, Near Eastern Golden Age mythology that inspires the Garden of Eden in Christianity, uh, and say, well, if the Golden Age is vegetarian, we should be too. Um, so philosophers are an individualistic bunch. Uh, you you have the uh, the Epicureans, who aren't at all like the modern word Epicurean. They believe in having a nice, simple life and finding pleasure in small things. Uh, and they think that the simple life would be vegetarian. But I think the idea that's very common to a lot of... Uh, a lot of the vegetarians of the Roman period, whether we're talking about... Um, the, the the Jewish monks in Alexandria, the Christian monks in Alexandria, the the elects of the Manichaeans, who are fascinated, who who I might get to in a moment, um, the the Neoplatonists, all of them, you've got these monks who are living an austere ascetic life and see vegetarianism as part of the road to being spiritual. Not necessarily a thing for everybody. Not the animals get a mention, but it's not their core reason. Um, but it's definitely a. But the tradition that joins it all together is is asceticism and spirituality. You do get people who talk about animals. You do get um, uh, you do get Plutarch in the third century uh, complaining that to. To, to compare plants w- with animals by people saying plants, though, in the third century common era. But you're vegetarian, you're killing the plants. He sums up that attitude as doing violence to the nature of things. Um, 
and it's uh, and his whole volume on abstention from eating flesh is a wonderful recounting of arguments for vegetarianism that could just be uh, that wouldn't be so different to what's written today. Uh, and some of it is quite poetic. Shall we say that uh, because the eagle flies higher than the the dove, the, the dove doesn't fly, same as it is with reason. The the animals can... The, we can reason better than the animals, but that doesn't mean the animals can't reason. That doesn't mean they have no moral value. Um, that, so there are those voices, but it's that... Uh, it's that monk-like spirituality um, that kind of enters Christianity and gives us, um, and we can still get to, uh, and we, we we can still get today. I was in, uh, I was vis- hanging out with my nieces today, and I went to a food market in Greenwich, and uh, and there was Ethiopian food there, which is vegan because. Uh, Ethiopians hold to very old Ethiopian Christians hold to vegan fasts on all their holy day on all their holy days, so they know how to make fantastic vegan food. A very and it goes right back to those original spiritual traditions of. I love of that. <laughs> of yes, it's so. Before we go to break, I, and there's so much more to say, mm. we could we could talk for a whole hour on the ancient world and not even scratch the surface. But after the break, I do want to get a little bit more into modern times. But just because Pythagoras is called the father of vegetarianism, give us a minute or two on Pythagoras. Oh, because he is, um, if you lived in, if you lived in Rome in Fulca, Say for common era, no, a common era. The hit of the uh, of the literary world is uh, *Metamorphoses* by Ovid, uh, a series of poems about changes, a whole purporting to be a whole history of the earth, and it gives Pythagoras this fantastic speech. Now, by this time, Pythagoras is a mythological figure from hundreds of years ago that combines genius of mathematics and music. It's like, uh, it's, it's like Einstein and your favorite guru all rolled into one, uh, with a bit of mockery of him as well. And I'm talking about the myth because almost the myth is more important than man because it gave the ancient world this, this symbol of, of, of a, a big, important legendary figure being vegetarian. Um, it's very hard to get at the real person uh, because the biographies of him are contradictory. Some say he was vegetarian, some say he wasn't. It's, uh, in a way, the myth was more influential. We can say that uh, that shortly thereafter, uh, he had followers called the Pythagoreans who were vegetarian. And uh, and they believed in reincarnation. They they believed you shouldn't eat animals because you could be eating a reincarnated relative. Um, they believed that the world were that 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 maths was sacred because it was the root of everything, and that music uh, was tied into mathematics. One of the 
one of the few things we can be pretty confident Pythagoras did discover was the rate was the link between the length of a string you twang and the note it makes, and that if you uh, and uh, if you pluck strings that have whole number ratios, it gives you pleasing harmonies. Wow! And he was also, I heard, an athletic coach. That that he was the coach of Milo of Croton, who was supposedly the greatest wrestler in the golden age of Greece. I have not heard that. Ah, this is from uh, Rinberry, who's, of course, deceased now. Mm. But, um, yes, he said that before you could study with Pythagoras, you had to be willing to do a 40-day fast on nothing but water, and then you had to agree to be um, what we would call a raw food vegan, unfired foods. Our sources for Pythagoras are non within are non within within his lifetime are yes. uh, are I think they start about two hundred years later. So by that time, there's been a chance for exaggeration to come in. So. I should say <laughs> <laughs> yes. May, may we all be exaggerated two hundred years after our death. Yes. I know you're fascinated, but we do have fascinating announcements from our wonderful network, Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. And after this, we'll be back with more Ian McDonald and a brief history of what we do. around the world that's easier than ever with mobile giving just text unity radio to 72727 and help us continue offering spiritual programs that change lives what if you could experience vibrant health help heal the planet and be a great friend to god's animal kingdom through simple choices you make at breakfast lunch and dinner Authors Victoria and Adair Moran say you can do this easily, affordably, and deliciously in their new book, Main Street Vegan. Everything you need to know to eat healthfully and live compassionately in a real world. Loaded with practical tips, straightforward information, and fabulous recipes, Main Street Vegan will help you on your journey toward a plant-based diet. The perks include more energy, an easy way to keep your weight where you want it, feeling younger as you grow older, and maybe even a boost to your spiritual life. Purchase Main Street Vegan from BN.com, Amazon.com, or your favorite bookseller. holy and all we need to do to experience that state is to make the decision to do so 
Everything we do can be a prayer. And by using our innate creativity with intention in every aspect of our lives, that can indeed be true. Author Carla Kincannon wrote, Creativity is so much more than art making. It is a tool for navigating through everyday experiences to find the sacred in each God-given moment. Discover Creative Spirit, Wednesdays at 4 p.m. Central Time, and experience the joy of connecting to spirit through creative expression. to Main Street Vegan with Victoria Moran. If you have questions or comments about today's topic or any other area of interest, we invite you to follow Victoria underscore Moran on Twitter or email her at MainStreetVegan at UnityOnlineRadio.org. Now, back to Main Street Vegan. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking about the history of vegetarianism and, and veganism. And I'm thinking there were vegans long before the founding of the Vegan Society in 1944. They just weren't called that. We'll get into that with our guest, Ian McDonald, of The Vegan Option. And do go to theveganoption.org and listen to these incredible interviews and stories that Ian McDonald has done with people around the world. So he's actually recording oftentimes on site, looking at, at these edifices and talking about the people who were there and did these amazing things on uh, several continents. So this is quite a fascinating listen. I highly encourage that. So Ian, uh, during the break, we talked about getting through the entire rest of history in the next 20 minutes, which isn't going to happen. So let's focus on some of the things that I think people know the least about and and perhaps most fascinated in. So we have coming from both the East and West, a vegetarian tradition from antiquity. And yet we have these vast centuries of, um, of the dark ages, the, the middle ages, those times in history when there just doesn't seem to be a lot of light in a lot of places. Is anything going on vegetarian-wise during these centuries? Well, um, there is a a vegan priesthood running a world religion. And and, and it's almost completely unknown, stretching uh, from the Mediterranean to southern China. Uh, now, these are the Manichaeans. You might have heard of the word Manichaean to describe something that's completely black and white. The Manichaeans thought that the world was produced in a battle between good and evil. Um, they, they were kind of born out of a confluence of Christianity, uh, Buddhist ideas, and, uh, and traditional Persian religion. And... In the West, uh, they tended to overlap with Christianity. People would describe Manichaeanism as a different way of looking at Jesus. Uh, And in fact, Augustine of Hippo, who's uh, one of the main theologians of Christianity, dabbled with Manichaeanism in his youth. And that might be why Augustine is so down on vegetarianism in his writings. 
because he was trying to make it clear he wasn't a Manichaean. And in the in the East, in China, they tend to, to be seen as a variant of Buddhism. They are followers of Mani, the founder, Mani, described as the Buddha of light. Um, they're the reason for being the reason for their elect, their I call them their priesthood, they're more kind of monks and nuns. Uh, being vegan is kind of is just plain weird to modern ears. Uh, they they thought that um, that the way of trapping the the particles of souls, the way of freeing the particles of souls that were trapped in this world from the primeval battle between good and evil, was for pure vegan beings to eat the souls trapped in light-coloured vegetable foods, uh, like say melon. It was light because it did a lot of trapped cells in it. And then they, they could sing them out as hymns and that would liberate them and, uh, and actually do the work of redeeming the world. So that was why their elect, their, their leaders were vegan, followed a vegan diet, I should say, because it's hard to describe that philosophy as vegan in modern terms. Um, so that was, uh, that was quite remarkable and it, lasted, it was kind of stomped out by Christianity. At one point it was the main rival to Christianity in the Roman Empire. And it seems to have faded away in China uh, somewhere between the 13th and the 19th century. Utterly fascinating. And and very quickly, St. Francis, what do you think? Vegetarian, not? um, I don't think there's a particular reason to think St. Francis was vegetarian. He also preached uh, we talk, people talk about him preaching to animals, but he also preached to rocks and stones. So there may have been a bit of imminence in there. Um, the Roman Catholic Church was uh, very down on the Cathars, who are a heretical group whose religions, whose religious beliefs had a bit in common with the Manichaeans. And because the church was knew the Manichaean from their from their oldest writings, they tended to view anything as they tended to describe the Cathars as Manichaeans. Uh, and, and, and and the Cathars were wiped out um, with great force. Um, they were all the rage in southern France and a couple of other places in the 12th century. And uh, by, by the 13th, um, the Pope had proclaimed a crusade against them. Uh, it was very gory. There's a uh, there were massacres, there were sieges. Um, it was partially political because the because the northern French king wanted to take over the south of France and and make his realm bigger. And that's most that's kind of how we get what we now know what we now know of as modern France. How fascinating! Wiping up vegetarians, you get an account of. Of, of of heretics being burnt at the stake because they refused to kill a chicken. Oh my goodness! And I'm sure there are some undercover investigators <laughs> who are re- relating to that. So let's move forward a I'm bit. I should say that the main thrust okay. of the Cathars were pescatarian rather than vegetarian, but it kind of okay. shows the church's intolerance. Right. So uh, and yet we have Trappists and um, this this ascetic tradition yes. is still there. This idea. That if you're really serious, 
you should be vegetarian. There's a, there are, I could talk about the weakening of that where uh, monks get, make more and more excuses uh, and then you get stricter and stricter monks coming up. In some ways, the uh, the Catharans look like another res- another strict ascetic response to these lax, mon- lax monks who are ignoring uh, ignoring the rules. Yes. So, in the interest of how little time we have to cover all of human history and yes. food, um, let's do talk about the Victorian era because a lot was happening then. I know that uh, that. Uh, British businesses uh, went to India in the 1600s. The colonization came later, but from the very beginning, there was this exchange of ideas. So by the time we get to the Victorian era, what do we have in terms of vegetarianism? Um, we have a we have a low color current, uh, particularly amongst the radicals. Uh, people talk about them in Indian terms. Uh, you have you have people who. Uh, go to India as part of the colonial effort, whether uh, usually for the Brits, and then come back actually thinking, look, the Indians are far better than us. They have vegetarianism. That's the thing to do. Uh, and in some cases, fight uh, for the French Revolution and a part of that effort. Uh, in in one case, uh, privately practice and preach their own really confused uh, version of Hinduism. It in in the eighteenth century it inspires um, philosophers like Rousseau and Voltaire who aren't really vegetarian, but Voltaire particularly is inspired to use that as a critique of Western civilization. So the idea, the undercurrent is there. You do get quite uh, famous figures like the Howard, John Howard, uh, in here in the UK. The the big prison reform trust is called the Howard League for Prison Reform. And that's named after a vegetarian 18th century figure. So the ideas are there. They're just they're just quite rare. In the early 19th century, we have um, we have people who begin uh, to, to hang out together and talk to each other. So there was a vegan commune in the home counties near London. Uh, if you've heard of um, well, uh, Shelley and Byron, the, um, the the great radical romantic poets of the early nineteenth century, hung out there and went went vegetarian for periods. And Shelley's poetry, though Shelley wasn't strictly vegetarian, Percy Byron Shelley created wonderful epic romantic spiritual poetry that espoused vegetarianism so much so. The, the satirical magazine Punch uh, published uh, published articles taking the proverbial pr- proverbial proverbial after the people it called the disciples of Mister Shelley. That was that was what vegetarians were being called. Um, but by that time, you've got uh, you've got religious groups in the northwest of England, the industrial heartland, uh, called the uh, call, they call themselves the Bible Christian Church, but they're they're a scientific, slightly mystical, slightly gorgeous in everything spin-off of the Swedenborgians. Uh, you've got uh, people who combine spirituality with socialism um, in London. Um, if you went probably a mile west of where we're talking right now, uh, you'd 
uh, you might, uh, 150 years ago, you might be able to run into them in their vegan commune. Um, they're inspired by, a, this all crosses over with America because there is an offshoot of the Bible Christian Church in Philadelphia. But go to Philadelphia. Uh, they have a bit of a problem on the journey, and by the end of it, there are only about four or five uh, five adults who are still sticking with the faith, but yet they do become a successful church for and 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 bring together figures like um, like Graham Sylvester Graham, um, who preached vegetarianism in the USA. There, the 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 mystical vegan bunch. Uh, are inspired by uh, by William Alcott, the dad of uh, Louisa May Alcott, who um, and they go with him to set up a vegan commune in New England, which fails miserably and inspires some memorable scenes from Little Women. It's uh, and it's all built towards actually setting up organisations. The, the people enough people are talking to to each other by the 1840s to have the vegan, sorry, the vegetarian society set up in England in 1847 uh, and in America in, I think, 1852. Uh, And from that point on, you actually have the backbone of an organization of people writing letters, of, uh, of, of people writing newsletters and, 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 and organising banquets and keeping in touch and having these conversations, and then things get, then there is a bit of momentum. Wow. And at that time, are they doing this for animals? Are they doing it for spirituality? For animals. Um, that there's, You can trace the different currents. So Sylvester Graham is absolutely doing it for uh, for health. And in fact, that you can even question how strictly Sylvester Graham is vegetarian, because he's... Uh, because when he dies prematurely, people claim that he was convinced to have meat, and that's why he died early. It's, um, but, uh, but at that stage, uh, animal liberation, as we call it today, I'm terribly sorry, that was me kicking from here. Uh, animal is is definitely a part of it. In fact, from the American side. There's a very strong identification that we might call intersectional today with uh, the fight to liberate human beings from slavery uh, by the 1860s. That movement really burns itself out uh, trying to found a... Because by 1850s America, Kansas is in play between being a slave state and being a free state. And... And people are uh, and people are moving there, and people are setting up. Uh, uh, there are slavers trying to beat up free staters, and the vegetarians try to set up a vegetarian settlement called Oxygen, uh, and it's a miserable failure. But it shows uh, it shows how committed the vegetarian movement is to the 
liberationist cause, the abolitionist cause. Oh, this is so fascinating because it was only um, 30, 40 years after that that Charles Fillmore, who founded Unity, which is the network that we're broadcasting through, um, was was vegetarian. He went to the World Congress of Religions in 1893, and uh, vegetarianism followed with some um, very powerful uh, writings um, that are being rediscovered today by by people in unity. So just in our last three minutes, can you bring us a little more modern? What? Well, that World Congress of Religions was um, vegetarianism kind of surged in the 1840s, in the 1880s. That World Congress of Religion, 1893, was part of the Chicago World's Fair, which was really the first time vegetarians from all across the world met. Uh, in the 1890s, searched again in the 1920s as people were more interested in pacifism, the outdoor life. Uh, again in the 1970s, uh, with the hippie and the discovery of all these different wonderful vegetarian foods from around the world, uh, and the young being much more interested uh, in a global way of life, and we're living through a big surge at the moment. Um, Wow. <laughs> you are very good at, at condensing that. So of, of all these periods, where do we get the health part? Is is that coming along the side or? Well, the health part has always been with us. Uh, there was um, the health part was very dominant in Europe in the 1930s. Fresh air, sandals and all of that. Uh, fresh body. It's good for you. Um you got that strand as well as the anti-vivisection animal rights strand. Um, but it was also dominant in America in the 1890s when you got Kellogg and, uh, and, 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 the, uh, and the gymnasia and the fitness fanatics. Uh, it was actually, uh, you even had a, vegeta- a vegetarian Chicago University athletics team uh, in the early 20th century. So they, they've all risen and fallen throughout history. I... Um, I think they've been kind of, but early 20th century America tended to be uh, more health. And the UK historically has tended to be more about the animals. Um, uh, but I, and the environment became really important in the 1970s. Um, it just became a bigger thing politically all round. And, uh, and, and vegetarianism was part of that. Right. Now, veganism per se, with a name, just give us uh, how that came into being quickly. Um, there have been arguments about whether it was okay for vegetarians of milk and eggs in the journals of the Vegetarian Society happening every few years, kind of since they got started. Um, certainly um, in the early 1910s, uh, again and again, in the 1940s, they kind of came together and got critical mass, and people started talking to each other. It was a massive debate in Croydon, um, kind of like five miles south of where we are, um, which the vegans trounced um, the dairy eaters significantly. Uh, and basically, people got together, found a society, found a name for it, and uh, and worked at solving the basic practical problems of where to get food from and also how to be healthy because there was um, that there was an early health crisis before people understood exactly how to be healthy on a vegan diet. Um, and although that didn't produce very many vegans, it did mean that when people were 
more willing to be interested uh, in this, perhaps in the 70s. But groundwork was done, and I really, as somebody, I mean, I've, I, I don't think I've been vegan as long as you. I went to vegan in 92. But it's, uh, but certainly the changes have been amazing, but I don't think in, in, in the last 20 years. But I don't think, uh, I don't think we'd have seen those without the groundwork, the, the tough groundwork done by those pioneers in the 40s and 50s. No, oh, absolutely. And every time I take a B12, <laughs> I always say I'm doing this for those early vegans most of which were very surprised at how well they did health-wise, that they actually were healthier than before, but some of them did get very sick because of B12. So to me, if I was going to hedge my bets and just hope I could get by without B12, to me that would be very disrespectful of those who got very sick and lost their lives when they didn't know about it. So finally, here we are. We are here with, with the Internet. We are here with all of this incredible vegan movement happening and yet worldwide more animals are being slaughtered for food than ever where are we right now in history i oh by the way i did check the rumors of people dying in that big healthcare. i couldn't actually find anybody who had i just know that people there was a rumor about it um the uh, and there were a couple of deaths but we don't it doesn't look like they were because of b12 oh it was just a really unlucky vegan society around the same there was just a really unlucky group of people around the same time as that scare broke um but no where are, how are we doing well the usa the developed world does seem to be peaking in meat demand there are more alternatives happening i think the big debates of the 21st century are going to be about global warming and lab meat and more future meats that are made out of plants uh but i really do uh, but yes, I mean, kind of the bad news is as the developed world develop, as the developing world develops. Yes. As the developing world develops, uh, we are going to see them consuming more animals. And that, uh, but I, I think the sides of hope are really in, uh, in, the curve going get down again in the developed world because that is the curve that yes. the developing world is likely to follow. And that's where we are, and that's what we can do for the entire world in McDonald. You are fascinating, and our history is fascinating. Theveganoption.org. I will put all of uh, Mr. McDonald's other uh, social media and so forth on the show notes at MainStreetVegan.net. To everyone, thank you so much for listening. God bless you. Eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Main Street Vegan. Join us every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Central Time as Victoria Moran entertains, educates, and inspires you on your vegan journey. This program is sponsored by Main Street Vegan. To learn more about Victoria or to explore training with Main Street Vegan Academy as a vegan lifestyle coach, go to www.mainstreetvegan.net. That's www.mainstreetvegan.net. Just like life, grief is a journey, not a destination. 
Whether it is loss of life, relationship, security, or simply the process of change, have you given yourself permission to begin your journey of grief? Have you yielded to the gift of grace? Join Reverend Chaz Wesley every Thursday at 5 p.m. Central on a virtual navigation from grief to grace and explore new horizons of empowerment, significance, and support only on Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.